You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. History isn't black and white, yet too often it's presented as such. Grey History, the French Revolution is a long-form history podcast dedicated to exploring the ambiguities and nuances of the past. From a revolution of hope and liberty to the infamous reign of terror, you can't understand the modern world without understanding the French Revolution. So search for the French Revolution today. Hello everyone. My name is Wesley Levesay from the History of the Second World War podcast. Join me on a journey through the most destructive conflict in human history. A journey that will take us not just through the famous campaigns and cataclysmic battles, but also to the lesser well-known corners of the war that touched millions all over the world, as we try and answer not just the questions of what and where, but how and why. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms or at historyofthesecondworldwar.com. Welcome to the Age of Napoleon. Episode 15, The Mob. Thanks for joining me. Before we get going in earnest, I need to talk about a little show business. I've tried to keep these types of announcements to a minimum. I listen to podcasts myself and don't particularly enjoy these interludes, but there's just no other sure way to reach all the listeners, so here goes. It would be a huge help to the show, and to me personally, if you could all fill out a small online survey. It's anonymous and very short. I swear it will take you less than two minutes. The URL is survey.libsyn.com slash ageofnapoleon. That's survey.libsyn.com slash ageofnapoleon. I'll post a link in the episode description as well if you didn't catch that. If you'd like to support the show financially, you can go to patreon.com slash ageofnapoleon. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash ageofnapoleon. There are a couple little bonuses available if you pledge at least $2 a month. I know a lot of podcasts do regular bonus content for Patreon supporters, but unfortunately I can't commit to doing that. I'm just one guy, and a lot of research and writing goes into every episode of this show. It's just not feasible. But it's really important to me that the core content of Age of Napoleon remains free and accessible to everyone, regardless of their ability to pay. If you can spare two bucks a month, enjoy the show, and you believe in that mission of making history accessible, I would appreciate your help. Anyway, back to the program. When we last left Napoleon, he had just achieved his first real political victory election to the position of lieutenant-colonel in the National Guard of Ajaccio. As always, he'd relied on his family, but also on a powerful new patron, Christophe Salicetti, one of Corsica's representatives to the Assembly in Paris, and a rising power in the revolutionary government. Together, Salicetti and the Bonapartes had brought down a candidate backed by Pasquale Paoli, the wily old Corsican independence leader. Napoleon and his brothers had once looked up to Paoli as an idol, but the general regarded them with suspicion, and his conservative authoritarian politics increasingly brought him into conflict with the radical Bonapartes. 
As I've said before, Napoleon's education and early career progressed so rapidly that it's easy to forget just how young he was at this point in our story. He was a lieutenant colonel and a notable regional political player, but still just 23 years old. The average lieutenant colonel in the U.S. Army today is in his or her 40s. You should always take comparisons like that with a grain of salt because France of the late 18th century was a very young society compared to America today. Indeed, it was much closer in age structure to modern countries like Nigeria or Uganda that have experienced recent population booms. All that said, Napoleon was in a position of tremendous responsibility for someone with such a limited experience of the world. This didn't seem to bother most people he came into contact with. He was precocious, and he projected an air of seriousness and competence. But as we'll see today, he still had some growing up to do. His worldview and identity were still evolving, and underneath that calm, capable exterior, he was still immature and unsure of himself. Only a few months after his election, Napoleon's leadership of the Ajaccio National Guard would be tested. His response would lay those deficiencies bare, and leave some questioning his fitness for command. The excitement of the election quickly died down, but Ajaccio remained on edge. Remember, the assembly was trying to solve France's financial problems by nationalizing church property and using it as collateral for a new type of currency. Salicetti had ordered that this process go ahead in Corsica, despite the objections of Pauli and most of the piously Catholic Corsican political establishment. In Ajaccio, the National Guard was loyal to the revolutionary government and stacked with Salicetti loyalists, so they took the lead in carrying out the nationalizations. The seizure of church property was an incredibly divisive policy all over France. In regions where strong anti-clerical sentiment dominated, people cheered it on as a long-overdue reckoning for the church's corruption and outsized influence over society. But in more Catholic areas, it was viewed as a tyrannical assault on faith and morality. Corsica definitely fell into the latter category. Nationalization of church property was massively unpopular, both among the common people and the ruling elite. Men like the Bonapartes, who saw it as a just and necessary measure, were very much in the minority. According to some sources, these tensions finally escalated into a violent disturbance in Ajaccio on Easter Sunday, 1792, when a group of the Catholic faithful attempted to block a detachment of National Guardsmen from entering one of the city's monasteries. Other sources say the spark came when two sailors arguing over gambling or a woman drew their stilettos, and the townspeople of Ajaccio began to take sides, and the incident spun out of control. Still others claim a large public argument broke out over two young girls playing a game in the street, and things escalated from there. Whatever the inciting incident, the atmosphere in Ajaccio was combustible. The city was crowded with people in town for the holiday, and there were those tensions over the church, which had created bad blood between the citizens and the main law enforcement institution, the National Guard. As we've discussed before, Many 18th-century Corsicans were accustomed to solving their disputes with violence. 
Traditionally, Corsican men carried a long stiletto dagger as a matter of routine. It wouldn't be unusual to see a sword at someone's side, or a pistol tucked into a belt, and most families kept a musket or a shotgun at home. So even in the best of times, a Corsican riot was serious business. This was an armed society with weak central authority and a tradition of private violence. A minor public disturbance could escalate shockingly quickly into something much bigger and much more dangerous. However the riot on Easter Sunday started, when Napoleon got wind of the violence, he quickly assembled a group of guardsmen and rushed to the scene. He told the crowd their assembly was unlawful, and that he'd open fire if they did not disperse. When he'd confronted that food riot outside Auxonne in 1789, this threat had been enough. But this time, some in the crowd decided to call Napoleon's bluff and opened fire themselves. Maybe they were angry at Napoleon and the guard for seizing religious property. Maybe they just didn't like being told what to do. Whatever their reasons, a National Guard lieutenant was killed instantly. Others were injured. And in that moment, it suddenly became very apparent just how huge the mob was compared to Napoleon's small detachment of guardsmen. Bonaparte and his men fled the scene, leaving the center of Ajaccio in the hands of the rioters. The smart move for Napoleon at this point was probably de-escalation. He could have announced a pause in the seizure of church property. Recognizing that the presence of the guard had become inflammatory to the Catholic population, he could have ordered his men to leave the city and appealed to the municipal government or the regular army garrison to maintain order. He did none of these things. Napoleon was a proud young man, and proud young men rarely respond with calculated caution when they've experienced this type of public humiliation. Instead, Napoleon assembled every guardsman he could find and ordered an all-out military assault on Ajaccio. What followed was nearly a week of intense street brawls between the guard and the citizens of the city, and the people of Ajaccio more than held their own. Remember, the National Guard was a brand new citizen's militia. They weren't significantly better trained or equipped than the average person, and they were badly outnumbered. Now that his troops were in over their heads, Napoleon belatedly appealed to the regular army garrison for help. The commander of that garrison, a Colonel Maillard, not only declined to send any of his own men, he refused to let National Guard troops enter the city's fortified citadel, denying them the most strategic position in the town. In fact, Colonel Maillard blamed the National Guard for the violence. He told municipal leaders he might be willing to use his troops to separate the Guard from the rioters, by force if necessary. There would be no need. By the end of the week, Napoleon and his men had been forcibly ejected from the city. This was a stunning humiliation, a force of ostensibly trained soldiers bested by a mob of civilians. But Napoleon was still not prepared to reverse course. He ordered his men to take up positions in the hills around Ajaccio. He planned to siege the city into submission, cut off the roads, and even block the aqueduct that brought drinking water into the city. His guardsmen sniped down into Ajaccio, 
They didn't hit much, but the population was terrified to go outside. The madness didn't end until a large body of National Guard reinforcements arrived on the scene, a unit loyal to Pauli and led by one of his right-hand men. As members of Pauli's faction, they were already inclined to blame Bonaparte for the incident, and the situation on the ground seemed to confirm all their biases. The Paulisti quickly diffused the situation, and Napoleon and Joseph were summoned to Corte to face the old general's wrath in person. The brothers saw Pauli in early May. No record exists of what transpired at that meeting. From what we can tell, neither Napoleon nor Joseph ever discussed it in writing, presumably because it went so badly that they were too ashamed to revisit the memory. Pauli was apoplectic. He hadn't wanted these arrogant boys in any position of power in the first place. Now that they'd defied him and gotten there anyway, they were causing nothing but headaches. Napoleon's pig-headed attempt to assert control over Ajaxio had led to nearly a week of unnecessary death and destruction. But not only that, he'd invoked Pauli's name in doing so, a slight on the general's personal honor. Colonel Maillard, commander of the regular army forces in Ajaccio, produced a report naming Napoleon as the sole instigator of the violence, and accusing him of using the riots as a sort of Trojan horse to attempt to gain control over the Ajaccio citadel. Not a totally unbelievable accusation in the light of Napoleon's well-documented Corsican nationalist sympathies, but given the circumstances of a city-wide riot, and Maillard's conservative, royalist inclinations and closeness with Pauli, this was probably just an attempt to smear Bonaparte, and an excuse for his own decision to bar the National Guard from the Citadel. There can be no doubt that Napoleon deserves a great deal of blame for the course and severity of what came to be called the Easter Riots, but in Maillard's telling, it was not a random event exacerbated by Napoleon's pride and inexperience, but some kind of plot, orchestrated by the Bonapartes at every stage. Maillard carefully avoided using the word treason, but the report was clearly engineered to give that impression without saying so outright. At their meeting in May, Pauli informed the Bonapartes that the government in Paris had demanded a full report on the riots and that he intended to endorse Maillard's version of events as the official findings of the Corsican regional government. This could easily lead to the end of Napoleon's public career, maybe even to prison. Of course, as one of the main participants in the Easter riots, Napoleon had been ordered to produce his own report on the incident, but his version didn't do much to help his case. Napoleon's report was almost as dishonest and biased as Maillard's, just in the other direction. To hear him tell it, these so-called riots were actually a planned counter-revolutionary uprising that only Lieutenant Colonel Bonaparte had been brave and patriotic enough to resist. He makes the disorganized mass of rioting citizens out to be some kind of militia that the National Guard engaged in a heroic but doomed military engagement. Napoleon even goes so far as to congratulate himself for saving the revolution. 
Maybe he felt justified in going so far over the top as a way to counterbalance all the lies and distortions coming from Maillard. But however you look at it, Napoleon's report was deceptive. The Easter riots were an ugly incident, the first real stain on Napoleon's record, although certainly not the last. You can see a lot of Napoleon's worst characteristics shine through in this episode. He was quick to resort to violence, and so single-minded in his efforts to impose order that he persisted even once it became clear that his draconian methods were only contributing to the chaos and lawlessness. He had been vindictive and cruel to the people of Ajaccio. He considered their rebelliousness in the face of his lawful authority dishonorable, and took it as a personal slight. Napoleon was perfectly capable of compassion, but throughout his life, anyone who enraged him the way the citizens of Ajaccio had on Easter 1792 often found themselves beneath his sympathy. Finally, when forced to face the consequences of his actions, Napoleon shamelessly spun the truth, not telling any outright lies, but coming up with something that was much closer to his grandiose boyhood fantasies about Julius Caesar or Alexander the Great than to reality. In time, Napoleon would grow to be infinitely more capable than the inexperienced 23-year-old incompetent who bungled the Easter riots but we will see more of these negative aspects of his personality. They manifested in different ways and on a much grander scale, but they remained with him his whole life. After their tongue lashing from Pauli, Joseph told Napoleon to make himself scarce. The old general was so enraged that one more provocation might mean an arrest warrant, or even a stiletto in the back. Napoleon agreed. He had business to conduct in Paris anyway. If you'll recall, he'd overstayed his leave from the regular army for so long that he'd actually been removed from the active duty roster. His salary had been stopped, which was still the family's main source of income, and he was in danger of being declared a deserter or an émigré. It might also be helpful to be able to answer the charges in Maillard's report, and defend himself in person. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. Napoleon arrived in the capital in the early summer of 1792, to find no one at army headquarters could care less about some riot in Corsica. The War of the First Coalition had broken out just as Napoleon was leaving the island. He found army headquarters in chaos, seized by frantic energy as the government and the high command flailed desperately to prepare for a war they knew the army was not ready to fight. 
Napoleon had anticipated a hard sell to get back on the active duty rolls. He brought all kinds of signed testimony from his allies back on Corsica, swearing that he'd been delayed by circumstances and involved in work vitally important to the revolution and the national interest. He turned out not to need them. Most of the remaining officers in the French army were desperately trying to get off the active duty rolls, not back on. The army needed all the help they could get. Napoleon was back in. I doubt anyone involved suspected they had just enrolled the officer who would one day be dictating terms to the Austrian foreign minister at the end of this war. Not only was Bonaparte reinstated, he was actually promoted to the rank of captain, despite the fact that he'd been away from his post for over a year and was technically under investigation for murder and treason, thanks to Colonel Maillard's report on the Easter riots. I think that goes to show just how desperate France was for trained officers. It seems almost beyond belief, but this was actually far less than what Napoleon had asked for. He'd petitioned the army for a promotion all the way to lieutenant colonel to match his rank in the National Guard, skipping the ranks of captain and major. This was incredibly rare, even in cases of meritorious promotion. Napoleon was never shy about asking for what he felt he deserved, however insane it may have looked to an outside observer. He was unable to quash the inquiry into the Easter riots, but the army assured him their investigation was on the back burner, and an extremely distant back burner at that. He wouldn't have to worry about it for the foreseeable future. Napoleon arrived in Paris prepared to fight tooth and nail to save his career, but the fight just never materialized. Pauli was like a force of nature on Corsica, but all his threats amounted to little more than hot air in Paris, especially when the government was busy fighting for its very existence. So Napoleon got what he came for. But remember, this trip wasn't just about business. He was also supposed to be laying low for a few months and staying out of Pauli's sight. So he settled in. Napoleon seems to have viewed this almost like a vacation. He got back in touch with Bourrienne, his old school friend, who was living in Paris. They went out to restaurants and to the theater. In his own awkward way, Napoleon even tried a little romance with the women of Paris, but nothing permanent came of it. Paris had a lot to offer a young man in search of entertainment. But if you'll recall the events we discussed in episode 14... The summer of 1792 was no ordinary time in the city. The revolution was at a critical juncture, and the added stress of the war was taking events in a much more radical direction. Paris would be the stage on which this drama played out, and Napoleon was now in the front row. On June 20th, Napoleon and Bourrienne were out to dinner near the center of town, when a large mob walked down the street past the restaurant. On Napoleon's suggestion, the two young officers followed the crowd to the Tuileries, the residence of Louis XVI. The masses of Paris forced themselves into the palace and bullied the king into coming out of his chambers and drinking with them. They dressed him up in a red liberty cap and a tricolor cockade, the sartorial symbols of political radicalism. They taunted Louis, either rule here or go rule in Koblenz, 
Koblenz was the city in the German Rhineland that had become a rallying point for aristocratic, counter-revolutionary emigres. The spectacle left Napoleon torn. He hated the monarchy and supported the radicals, but it offended his deeply held sense of order and honorable conduct. He wrote to Joseph, quote, All of this is unconstitutional and sets a dangerous precedent. It is hard to predict what will become of the realm in such dangerous circumstances. End quote. He remarked to Bourrienne that the king had troops and cannon at the palace, and easily could have dispersed the mob if he had so chosen. Napoleon didn't see the decision to hold fire as humanitarian, but as pure weakness and short-sightedness. In his view, the decision to spare a few lives at the Tuileries that evening had put tens of thousands more at risk by damaging the legitimacy of the state. But he certainly didn't feel sorry for the king either. The incident only solidified his view that the monarchy was too weak and too incompetent to rule, that France would remain insecure and backwards as long as the king remained. A few weeks later, on August the 10th, the mobs began to gather around the Tuileries once again. The leader of the coalition army, the Duke of Brunswick, had issued his infamous manifesto, threatening the city with destruction if the royal family was harmed. When the manifesto reached Paris, the people weren't intimidated, they were enraged. Napoleon rushed to the Place Vendôme, a public square across the street from the palace, where Bourrienne's uncle owned a furniture shop that had a good view of the palace grounds. On his way, he was cornered by an armed group of working-class Parisians. They saw his fancy officer's uniform and suspected he was a counter-revolutionary, maybe even some kind of spy for the coalition. They demanded he shout, Long live the nation, to prove his commitment to the revolution. Of course, Napoleon was happy to comply and went on his way. From the second floor of the furniture shop, he and Bourrienne watched as once again the crowd surged onto the palace grounds, and once again the royal guard declined to use force to stop them. Napoleon shouted in Italian, Che colione, meaning roughly, What dumbasses! When the mob invaded the Tuileries on June the 20th, the results had been menacing, but there was no harm done. As Napoleon said, it had set a dangerous precedent, but nothing more. This time was different. The crowd was angrier and terrified of the approaching coalition army. They took all that rage and fear out on the palace guards. Napoleon watched as the crowd literally tore soldiers apart. I don't want to get too graphic here, but the level of violence made a big impact on Napoleon, so it's important to give you guys some idea of how bad it was. Heads and limbs were pulled off of bodies. Corpses were mutilated. Think of an ISIS video. Much later that night, Napoleon and Bourrienne walked the grounds of the palace to get a closer look at the carnage. Napoleon would go on to tour many battlefields the day after an action, but late in his life, he claimed that this scene, the Tuileries Gardens on the night of August the 10th, 1792, affected him the most deeply out of all the battlefields he witnessed. And that's actually saying something. It's hard to believe, but Napoleon was actually pretty squeamish. 
he could be very cavalier talking about casualties in the abstract, but seeing them up close almost always had an effect on him. The night of August the 10th was the first time he saw mass casualties up close, and the royal guards had died in some of the worst ways imaginable. I'm speculating here, but the scene probably made Napoleon even angrier at the monarchy. Sure, these men were on the other side, politically speaking, but they'd behaved honorably. They'd stayed loyal to their commander, and obeyed orders to the very end, even at the risk of their own lives. In Napoleon's view, it was the king's weakness and incompetence that had brought them to this end. The palace guard had pledged their lives to Louis, and this is how he'd repaid them, abandoning them to be butchered while he sought refuge with his enemies. Later in life, Napoleon would say that the king could have stopped the whole affair by riding out to take command of the palace guard himself, sword in hand, and showing the people that he was not afraid. The fact that he hadn't was just more proof that he and his kind were unfit to rule. In early September, Napoleon witnessed yet another outbreak of mob violence. As the coalition forces approached Paris, the public began to worry about the thousands of royalists detained by the revolutionary government. What if they were conspiring to rise up and act as a fifth column when Brunswick's army reached the city? To mollify these concerns, the government hastily raised a large force of volunteer prison guards, a phrase that seems like such an obvious recipe for disaster that many historians suspect what followed was actually deliberately orchestrated by the revolutionary government. Almost immediately, these volunteers began an indiscriminate slaughter of royalist inmates. Enthusiastic citizens joined in, and the violence soon spilled out into the streets. For nearly a week, suspected royalist sympathizers all over Paris were assaulted and murdered. We call this the September Massacres. According to some sources, Napoleon had another run-in with the mob during this period, similar to the one on August the 10th, when that group of poor Parisians suspected him of being a royalist because of the fancy uniform. It's certainly possible that he just had two similar experiences, but my guess would be that at some point someone made a mistake and conflated the September massacres with the night of August the 10th, two famous events of the revolution that both involved mob violence and occurred only weeks apart. Whether or not he actually encountered the mob firsthand during the September massacres, Napoleon experienced a complete breakdown of civil authority in Paris, the entire city given over to fear and chaos, for the third time in only a few months. He left for Corsica shortly after. By the time he arrived in Ajaccio, the armies of the revolution had turned back the coalition at Valmy, and France had been declared a republic. The brief period of time fate had placed Napoleon in Paris coincided almost exactly with the revolution's darkest hour. He had only been in the city about three months, but in that short time he had managed to bear first-hand witness to some of the ugliest episodes of the entire revolutionary period. 
What he saw in Paris, combined with the experience of the Easter riots in Ajaccio, had a profound effect on Napoleon. For the rest of his life, he would be wary of the masses, the mob, the common people. To Napoleon, the events of 1792 illustrated how dangerous they could be in a society without strong, legitimate central government. It's important to stress, Napoleon hadn't become a reactionary overnight. He didn't despise the masses, and he didn't think it was feasible or desirable to simply keep them down with force. Napoleon did believe part of the role of a strong central government was to maintain order, and that violence could be used to that end as a last resort. But he also believed a good government really leads its people, in a moral sense instructs them to be good citizens, and inspires them to endeavor for the common good. These events had cemented his belief that the old Bourbon monarchy was not up to these tasks. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances— I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Napoleon returned to Corsica much more cynical and much more aware of man's inhumanity to man, as they say. He hadn't let go of all of his Enlightenment ideals, and he still supported the Jacobin political faction. But he felt the politicians had handled the crises of the summer poorly, bickering amongst themselves rather than taking charge of the situation. By the time he returned to Corsica, Napoleon seems to have grown temporarily sick of politics. Here's a letter he wrote to Joseph during his time in Paris. Quote, The men in charge of the revolution are a sorry bunch. It must be acknowledged, when one looks at matters closely, the people do not deserve all the trouble taken over them. You are acquainted with the story in Ajaccio. It's the same in Paris. Perhaps people here are meaner, worse, and bigger liars. Everyone pursues his own interest, and searches to gain his own ends by dint of all sorts of crimes. People here scheme as basely as ever. All of this destroys ambition. One pities those who have the misfortune to play a part in public affairs. To live tranquilly and enjoy the affections of one's family is what one should do when one has 5,000 francs a year and is between 25 and 40 years old. That is to say, once the imagination has calmed down and no longer torments one. I embrace you, and recommend you to be moderate in all things. In all things, mind you, if you desire to live happily. End quote. It's absolutely dripping with irony in hindsight. 
Napoleon's public profile would soon begin a meteoric rise that would see him dictator of France just seven years after writing that letter. But at this moment, he was genuinely burned out with politics, doubting it was all worth the cost. But that's not the way revolutions work. Events pull people in, whether they like it or not especially men from prominent political families who hold officers' commissions in the militia. Once he returned to Corsica, Napoleon would be thrown almost immediately back into the tumult of revolutionary politics and civil conflict. There would be no time to recover from his burnout or reflect on his doubts. But we'll leave all that for the future. Next episode is a big one. Napoleon will get his first taste of battle, a real battle, not a glorified street brawl with a bunch of civilians. And the long-simmering conflict between Pauli and the Bonapartes will finally boil over. Please don't forget to fill out that survey at survey.libson.com slash ageofnapoleon. Until next time, thanks for joining me. All you need is a few minutes to start your day off with something historic when you listen to the This Day in History podcast. Every day there's a new episode for you to listen and learn about what happened that day way back when. So listen and subscribe to This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. That's This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, this is Matt from the Explorers Podcast. I want to invite you to join me on the voyages and journeys of the most famous explorers in the history of the world. These are the thrilling and captivating stories of Magellan, Shackleton, Lewis and Clark, and so many other famous and not-so-famous adventures from throughout history. Go to ExplorersPodcast.com or just look us up on your podcast app. That's the Explorers Podcast.